Right. I invite you to turn with me to Judges chapter 1. And I want to begin here with a confession. I have the most attentive audience I've ever had with that statement. You should be ashamed of yourself. Um, I was never good at geography. Still, I'm not good at geography. But I'm not alone. <clears throat> right? In 2006, a study revealed that 63% of Americans between the ages of 18 and 24 couldn't locate Iraq on a map, despite the fact that most of their lives we've been at war in that region. 50% couldn't find the state of New York. Furthermore, the following year, during the Q&A portion of Miss Teen USA, Caitlin Upton from South Carolina suggested the reason Americans were so poor at geography was due to a lack of maps. And she fumbled through that answer uh, infamously. Like it or not, geography is the primary subject of this chapter in Judges. Judges 1 is theological geography. And so it's helpful, in fact, and you may want to do this, to look at the maps in the back of your book as we read through this. Uh, we won't be referring to them throughout, but as, or maybe as you get home, you pull out a Bible that has, has maps so you can see all the different territories that, were being, that are being discussed in this section. Marshall McLuhan coined the phrase, the medium is the message. And in Judges, we might say the structure is the message. The, the structure of the entire book declares this message of the canonization of Israel. The fact that Israel is continuing to become more and more like their neighbors, the Canaanites. In fact, by the end, we would say they're possibly even worse than their neighbors. Here in chapter 1, we see that same thing, that the structure of chapter 1 really gives the main message of the chapter. It's Israel's failure to accomplish the work that Joshua had left. And that's the question as we begin this book. Will Israel complete the conquest that Joshua instructed them to complete? That, that God had given to Joshua and that Joshua passes on to this next generation. And what the book of Judges shows, and really what this first chapter shows, is how that conquest turns into a, a campaign to merely coexist with their neighbors. It went from conquering them to coexisting with them, and it was an utter failure on their part. But I think the message is this, that despite the downward spiral of the Israelites, God never left his people without hope. God never left his people without hope. Despite their repeated and continual failures, God continues to respond and answer their cry for help. And so before we read this chapter, let's ask the Lord for his help. And understanding it. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this book that you've given to us as a warning 
it does instruct us and it gives us a valuable lesson in viewing a, a people who were in rebellion, a people who did not do the work that you'd called them to do. And whether it was minor compromises or, or major compromises, it all amounted to disobedience and was worthy of your wrath. And yet, time and time again, we see instead of receiving your wrath, they're recipients of your mercy and your grace. You raise up judge after judge to rescue them out of their plight that they themselves put them in. Lord, help us to see this truth and to apply it to our own lives by your Spirit. To be convicted where we have compromised. And to be challenged, Lord, to respond in obedience. For your glory we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. So read with me Judges chapter 1. After the death of Joshua, the people of Israel inquired of the Lord, Who shall go up first for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? The Lord said, Judah shall go up. Behold, I have given the land into his hand. And Judah said to Simeon, his brother, Come up with me into into the territory allotted to me, that we may fight against the Canaanites. And I likewise will go with you into the territory allotted to you. So Simeon went with him. Then Judah went up, and the Lord gave the Canaanites and the Perizzites into their hand, and they defeated ten thousand of them at Bezek. They found Adonai Bezek at Bezek, and fought against him, and defeated the Canaanites and the Perizzites. Adonai Bezek fled, but they pursued him, and caught him, and cut off his thumbs and big toes. And Adonai Bezek said, Seventy kings with their thumbs and big toes cut off used to pick up scraps under my table. As I have done, so God has repaid me. And they brought him to Jerusalem, and he died there. And the men of Judah fought against Jerusalem and captured it and struck it with the edge of the sword and set the city on fire. And afterward, the men of Judah went down to fight against the Canaanites who lived in the hill country, in the Negev, and in the lowland. And Judah went against the Canaanites who lived in Hebron. Now the name of Hebron was formerly Kiriath Arba. And they defeated Sheshai and Ahiman and Talmai. From there they went through the they went against the inhabitants of Debir. The name of Debir was formerly Kiriath Safer. And Caleb said, He who attacks Kiriath Safer and captures it, I will give him Oksa, my daughter, for a wife. And Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, captured it. And he gave him Oksa, his daughter, for a wife. When she came to him, she urged him to ask her father for a field. And she dismounted from her donkey, and Caleb said to her, What do you want? She said to him, Give me a blessing, since you have set me in the land of the Negev. Give me also springs of water. And Caleb gave her the upper springs and the lower springs. And the descendants of the Kenite, Moses' father-in-law, went up with the people of Judah from the city of Palms into the wilderness of Judah, which lies in the Negev near Arad. And they went and settled with the people. And Judah went with Simeon, his brother, and they defeated the Canaanites who inhabited Zephath and devoted it to destruction. So the name of the city was called Hormah. Judah also captured Gaza 
with its territory and Ashkelon with its territory and Ekron with its territory. And the Lord was with Judah and he took possession of the hill country, but he could not drive out the inhabitants of the plain because they had chariots of iron. And Hebron was given to Caleb, as Moses had said, and he drove out from it the three sons of Anak. But the people of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites who lived in Jerusalem. So the Jebusites have lived with the people of Benjamin in Jerusalem to this day. The house of Joseph also went up against Bethel, and the Lord was with them. And the house of Joseph scouted out Bethel. Now the name of the city was formerly Luz, and the spies saw a man coming out of the city. And they said to him, Please, show us the way into the city, and we will deal kindly with you. And he showed them the way into the city. And they struck the city with the edge of the sword, but they let the man and all his family go. And the man went to the land of the Hittites and built a city and called its name Luz. That is its name to this day. Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Sheen and its villages, or Tanakh and its villages, or the inhabitants of Dor and its villages, or the inhabitants of Iblium and its villages, or the inhabitants of Megiddo and its villages. For the Canaanites persisted in dwelling in that land. When Israel grew strong, they put the Canaanites to forced labor, but did not drive them out completely. And Ephraim did not drive out the Canaanites who lived in Gezer, so the Canaanites lived in Gezer among them. Zebulun did not drive out the inhabitants of Kitron or the inhabitants of Nahalol, so the Canaanites lived among them, but became subject to forced labor. Asher did not drive out the inhabitants of Acho or the inhabitants of Sidon or Alab or Oxib, or Helba, or Aphek, or of Rehob. So the Asherites lived among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land, for they did not drive them out. Naphtali did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh, or the inhabitants of Beth Anath. So they lived among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land. Nevertheless, the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh and of Beth Anath became subject to forced labor for them. The Amorites pressed the people of Dan back into the hill country, for they did not allow them to come down to the plain. The Amorites persisted in dwelling in Mount Perez, in Aijalon, and in Shalbim. But in the hand of the house of Joseph, or but the hand of the house of Joseph rested heavily on them, and they became subject to forced labor. And the border of the Amorites ran from the scent of Akrabim, from Selah. And upward. Amen. This is God's holy word. Well, we begin here with what is probably the most optimistic passage in the book of Judges. These first 17 verses where we see God's provision of hope or uh, preservation of hope. And in a couple of ways, he first provides and he gives his presence. He's preserving hope among them. Look back at verses 2 and 4. The Lord said, Judah Judah shall go up. Behold, I have given the land into his hand. Again in verse 4, then Judah went up and the Lord gave the Canaanites and the Perizzites. So the Lord is giving to them. He's providing victory for them. The people of Israel... They begin by inquiring of the Lord, asking who shall go up first, who shall begin this conquest. 
for them in this generation, and he get, he instructs them to send Judah. Right? He's beginning to answer and to fulfill his promises that we first read in Genesis chapter 49, when Jacob is giving a blessing to his sons. We read this, Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you've gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion and as a lioness, who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him. So this is now being fulfilled. Judah is going out and leading the way. And ultimately, the king, uh, David, will come from this uh, tribe. And also, Lord, our Lord Jesus will come from the tribe of Judah. But we have the early stages here of victory. And, and, and the first example he gives, or is this first story that he associates with this victorious uh, campaign of Judah is in Bezek, verses 4 through 7. It speaks of Adonai Bezek, which Adonai, you may have heard that language referred to the Lord. That's, that's the word we translate Lord, but it can also refer to a chief or a commander. Right? It's a captain of an, of an army or, or you know, um, uh, the, the Lord of this, you know, of this region, this city. So this is probably a title and not a, a proper name. He's the Lord of Bezek. And he's conquered 70 other kings. Now, the, the numbers here are general, right? You have 70 kings and you have 10,000 of them at Bezek were defeated. The idea is the is, is numbers of completion. Right? This was the king of kings at this time. This lord of Bezek, he had defeated and conquered other kings. And, and right off the bat, God is saying he is sovereign over the highest king. In the region, no one can overthrow his people if God is with them. And so the Lord of Bezek is defeated, overpowered by the people of the Lord God. Right? And, and he's incapacitated and humiliated by having his thumbs and his big toes cut off. And we'd like to we'd like to have a really good explanation for why this happened. And the one that we have is is all we get. It's sufficient, right? That he says this is what he had done himself to the kings he had conquered. He humiliated them and incapacitated. Obviously, you can't pick up utensils. You can't pick up weapons of war. You can't run as well if you don't have your big toes and you have your thumbs. So it, it, it really it, it takes away the threat. Um, and so this is what what Israel does to Adonai Bezek, and he recognizes it as divine retribution. So right off the bat here, what we want to acknowledge is that even the Canaanites understood what was taking place here. They weren't saying, oh, this is so unjust. How cruel of you to do this. No, his response is, I'm getting what I deserve. I've done this to many kings, and I'm getting exactly what I deserve. We should not have a problem with what Israel 
had done here. And they take him ultimately to Jerusalem where he is killed. And it doesn't say directly how he was killed specifically, but the implication is that he, they took him there to execute him, to put him to death. Right? And it goes on from there, verses 8 through 10, speak of more victories. Right? They go into the hill country, into the Negev, and into the lowland, three different regions where they find victory. And Judah went against the Canaanites who lived in Hebron, and they defeated Sheshai, Ahimon, and Talmai. So these are all, this is the opening victories that Israel has received. And then it transitions into another story, another vignette or an example here of God's faithfulness, verses 11 through 15. And it's a story that's already been detailed in Joshua. Um, so this is a recapitulation of the events that took place already. He's saying, from there they went up against the inhabitants of Debir, and it's a uh, Debir, formerly known as Kiriath Safer. And Caleb gives this offer, this challenge. Anyone who captures Kiriath Safer, I'll give Oxa, my daughter, for a wife. And Othniel accomplishes the task. And it's Caleb's younger brother who captures it. And he receives Oxa for a wife. Again, some would want to point out the, the challenges or the problems of this passage. They want to emphasize the misogynistic nature, that the patriarchy here that is sort of treating women as a prize to be uh, transferred from one party to another. And yet that's not the story here at all. Right? This, this is a, a time and a culture where arranged marriages was the norm. And it would have been a tremendous privilege for Oxa to marry a hero like Othniel. Right? There is nothing negative in this passage. This is a beautiful picture, in fact, of the gospel. Right? Because the one who conquered a wicked city will receive the reward of a bride, of land, and of springs of water. He receives a blessing by conquering wickedness. It's a, it's a, a hint of the gospel, is it not? The one who comes and conquers receives his bride. Right? It's a, a passage and an action that's to be commended, to be praised. And this peaceful cooperation between man and woman is really in contrast to what we'll see at the end. How the concubine is treated, the Levite's concubine in chapter 19, or the daughters of Shiloh in chapter 21. Right? How they're completely disregarded. But here, this is the opposite of that. This is to be commended. All right, so you have this picture of victory and then a picture of blessing. And then you have a picture of God fulfilling his promises in verses 16 and 17. Uh, first of all, Moses' father-in-law, Jethro, right, his family, um, descendants of the Kenite, are adopted into the family of God right through belief, through faith. They are adopted into the tribe of Judah and they receive a portion of the inheritance. So we see a picture of God's grace here. 
to those who would who would convert. And then in verse 17, you have Judah going up with Simeon. And it says that they uh, defeat and utterly destroy Zephath. The name of the city becomes called Horma, which is a play on words. So the devoted to destruction um, is a play on words with this title, Horma. Right? It's the idea that this city has been named after the fulfillment of the harem. Right? The, 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 the responsibility, the command from God to utterly destroy those inhabitants of the land, of the promised land. And again, if you want an explanation of that, you've got to go back to a couple of weeks ago when we talked about um, the challenges we, we find when we deal with this passage um, and, and the command that they had to, to eliminate these nations. Again, even as we already saw a picture of um, Adonai Bezek recognizing this was what he deserved, right? it was in response to their corruption, their rebellion against their creator. Uh, this is this is what's taking place here. God's divine justice, his wrath is being poured out upon the inhabitants of the promised land, and it's being given over to Judah. And yet this is really where we end with any kind of positive notion from this chapter. Uh, well, actually, there's there's one more thing I want to point out, and that's his, that his presence. He's, he says in verses um, 19 and 22 that God is with Judah. In verse 19, we read, And the Lord was with Judah. And then in verse 22, The house of Joseph was also went up against Bethel, and the Lord was with them. So two phrases. There are two, two groups that are, that are listed as being that the Lord being with them. And these are the only two successful parts of this chapter. Right? Where Judah's campaign goes, that the Lord is with him. And then with Joseph, the early part. In fact, Joseph is a combination of Manasseh and Ephraim. The sons of Joseph. So in the early part of their campaign, as they work together, they're successful. But as you see in verses 27 through 29, you have their failure. When they separate, where Manasseh does not drive out the inhabitants and Ephraim does not drive out the, um, the Canaanites. But where, where, the, where the explanation of the Lord being with them in verses 19 and 22, you have success. You have victory. And I think, I think it emphasizes the need for unity. Right? You, have a, you have Judah going with his brother, Simeon. The largest tribe going with the smallest tribe, Simeon. Simeon, in fact, is, is surrounded by Judah. The, the land inheritance that's given to Judah, Simeon is within sight that. In fact, Simeon will be swallowed by that, by the... Um, later on in, in, in Samuel. But you have in, in the book of Judges them working together here. And it would have been a natural relationship for them to work together. It was a, a positive thing. Uh, he was there united in this work. And then in verse 17, you see it again. And Judah went with Simeon, his brother, and they defeated the Canaanites. So tribal unity leads to success. Joseph as well. Manasseh and Ephraim, as they work together, the Lord is with them, and they defeat Bethel. Now, this in itself is, is, has some problems, and we'll get to those in a little bit, verses 23 through 26. 
But on the whole, they found success in defeating Bethel. And so here's what I want to emphasize from this uh, by way of application. And Del Ralph Davis says this, The unity and fellowship of God's people is not a wimpy idea weak Christians dote on. It is an essential condition for experiencing the strength of our God. Right, and far too often the church is filled with division and discord and conflict and gossip and backbiting and slander. And it's a tragedy right, because it limits our experience of the strength of our God. But this opening section here of chapter 1 is God preserving hope. When Israel was in the midst of deterioration, there remained a remnant. A remnant of those who were faithful, who were steadfast. And it's it's the same thing in, in the book of Ruth. right? In the time of the judges, you have the episode that took place in Ruth happening. It's another picture of a, a remnant of those who were faithful. So when we are surrounded by corruption in this world, we're oftentimes led to pessimistic outlooks upon life or upon the, the progress of the church and the culture. We see secularization growing and increasing from generation to generation, and we're filled with a sense of hopelessness. And in those times, it's difficult to trust in the promises of God, to be reminded of the victory that's been promised. We're prone to act by sight and not by faith. And so we need to be encouraged by Judges chapter 1, at least this opening section here. Be encouraged that God will never leave his people without hope. No matter how desperate your situation seems. Remember this, 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the Lord is not slow in fulfilling his promises. Right? He's patient. He's waiting for us to repent. And so what I would say by way of direct application is that those of you who are older, this older generation, you must teach the younger generation about God's faithfulness. Because it only takes a generation to lose sight of it. We must be involved in mentoring the younger generation training them up, reminding them of what God has promised and how he has already begun fulfilling those promises. And time and time again, reminding them of how God preserves hope. But the interesting thing, the unfortunate reality in the context of Judges is that God's preservation of hope led to an increasing compromise. And that the people really began to tolerate evil more and more. It was as if they said, well, if, if I wasn't killed for, for that compromise, well, maybe I'll, I'll compromise in this way. And since he, if that didn't lead to my destruction, I'll, 
compromise again. And it gets worse and worse, progressively worse, which is what sin does. Right? Israel's toleration of evil is what we see also very clearly in this chapter. And I want to begin by saying that this section, that the work was never expected to be easy. Um, the victory was to be accomplished in stages. In Exodus chapter 23, verses 29 and 30, we read this. I will not drive out from before you. I will not drive them out from before you in one year. It's not going to be swift. I'm not going to do it in a single year. Lest the land become desolate and the wild beasts multiply against you. Right? Lest wild beasts begin to take ownership of the land. So we're going to do this in stages. Verse 30, little by little, I will drive them out from before you until you have increased and possessed the land. So they should have been prepared for a process, a, a progress in this slow campaign of taking over the promised land. And it, it would require ongoing faithfulness, generation after generation. The book of Judges takes place over about 350 years. So many generations are represented here. And God was testing them. And we'll see that in chapter 2 very clearly. And of course, what we see right off the bat is that they failed. We know the Lord was with them. We've read that. The Lord was with them, uh, with Judah. He promised to be with them. And he promised them victory. And they had heard Joshua because he gathered them together in chapter 23, verse 5. He says, the Lord your God will push them back before you and drive them out of your sight and you shall possess their land just as the Lord your God promised you. So he gathers all of Israel together and he tells them this. You're, the Lord is going to go before you. You're going to have victory. And yet in verse 19, the Lord was with Judah and he took possession of the hill country, but he could not drive out the inhabitants of the plain because they had chariots of iron. The first sign of failure deals with Judah's pharamphobia, their fear of iron. They, they feared the strength of these armies, which, in fact, Moses had said, you'll face stronger armies. In Deuteronomy chapter 20, verse 1, he tells them, When you go out to war against your enemies and see horses and chariots and an army larger than your own, you shall not be afraid of them. For the Lord your God is with you, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And in Joshua 17, even more specifically, Joshua says, in verse 18 of chapter 17. But the hill country shall be yours, for though it is a forest, you shall clear it and possess it to its farthest borders, for you shall drive out the Canaanites, though they have chariots of iron, and though they are strong. And time and time again, they had been promised that they would drive out armies that are stronger than them, larger with greater technology. So why did they fail? It was because of their fear. 
Right? They were filled with doubt. In chapter or verse 21, you see Benjamin failing, failing. But the people of Benjamin did not drive out the, the Jebusites who lived in Jerusalem. So in verse 19, it's Judah could not drive out. Here in 21, it's Benjamin did not drive out. See, in, in verse 19, they didn't think they were capable of it. In verse 21, they simply don't do it. They did not. They're just being disobedient. Later on, in verses 22 through 26, we see they're successful against Bethel, but their success is filled with compromise. Notice the similarities here in this passage. This is the house of Joseph going up against Bethel, and you read about how they scouted out Bethel, and they find this man who's leaving the city, and they use him. The spies, they, they ask him for help. And it sounds very similar, doesn't it, to the story of the capture of Jericho. Right? They, in both cases, they sent spies to scout out the land. In both cases, they received help from an ordinary citizen. But in regards to Jericho, they offer a reward to Rahab. But it's because she had already given testimony concerning the Lord's favor upon Israel. But Rahab had become a believer. She acknowledged him as the only true God. But what happens here? This man, he's offered a reward without any kind of testimony. He's essentially brought into a treaty with them. They will, not, they will uh, spare him if he helps them. And then after they do conquer the city... What happened? Well, Rahab takes her family and she enters into the land of Israel. She integrates herself into the Israelite community. She becomes one of them. Right? Their God becomes her God. In this case, this family just departs to the Hittites. And they're given a city, which they then be, can build and continue to live within the promised land. A complete compromise of God's command. So you have uh, Judah's fear, followed by Benjamin's disobedience, followed by Joseph's pagan treaty, and then the whole thing just kind of starts falling apart. Verses 27 through 36. The rest of the tribe's failure. Israel, interestingly, is seen to be in control throughout it. Right? They're enslaving the Canaanites. You don't enslave a people uh, unless you have power over them, unless you have the authority to. People don't just kind of say, well, we'll be your slaves, even though we were mightier and stronger than you. So they were enslaving them, but they simply were disobedient and not driving them out. They left them in the land, and they tolerated their presence which was a direct violation of God's command. And, it, and it's a progressive um, spiral downward here. Manasseh, they're in control. They, they subject the Canaanites to forced labor, but they leave the Canaanites in the land. Ephraim allowed the Canaanites to live within their territory. Zebulun subjects the Canaanites to forced labor. Again, same as Manasseh. Asher, it says lives within Canaanite territory. 
now it's getting worse. Right? It's considered Canaanite territory, and Asher's living within that territory. Naphtali lived among Canaanites, but they were also subject to forced labor. And finally, Dan is driven into the hills of Amorite territory. Right? Dan is almost utterly unsuccessful. So again, what do we see this? This is a picture of the toleration of evil. And toleration becomes apostasy within a single generation. Living with the Canaanites quickly becomes worshiping with the Canaanites. Small compromises compound to the point that there's complete chaos and rebellion in the promised land. And so in Judges 1, we have a superior superior nation compromising her morals in order to accommodate others. Now, I know that's hard to see the relevance today. A superior nation compromising her morals in order to accommodate everyone else. We are in desperate times. And so what is our response? It's to cry out to the Lord, knowing that he will hear us and that he will rescue. Psalm 34 is one of my favorite psalms. Verses 17 through 18 says, When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. We should be crying out to the Lord in times of desperation. The question is, does does the Lord hear your cry? We know if you're crying, he does. So really what we're asking is, are you crying out to the Lord? Are you going to him in prayer? Are you dependent upon him? Israel... Their repeated faithfulness was faithlessness was met with God's repeated faithfulness. And we can get bogged down by political failures in our day. But our hope is not in the success of this nation. Right? The church is often guilty of the same thing. Israel, Israelite, the Israelites were guilty of here. Right? Becoming like our neighbors, becoming like the culture, canonizing following after the pattern of this world, we compromise God's clear commandments and forfeit the blessing God associates with obedience. But despite this downward spiral that we find ourselves in, God never leaves us without hope. He always responds to our cries for help. And so God's preservation of hope will one day culminate in our eternal enjoyment And Israel's toleration of evil was once and for all defeated in the person and work of Jesus Christ. He was the one Savior who was never guilty of any degree of compromise. And it is he who cries out with us for our deliverance. Let's look to him now. Heavenly Father, we thank you for these promises that we have